If you have a Bible with you, let me invite you to open up to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and we're going to be now moving into that part of chapter 2 and 3 where we examine the seven churches of Revelation. We've spent a couple of weeks introducing where we're going from chapter 1, and this morning we're going to start off with the first church, the church of Ephesus, and so I've given a title to the message this morning as the Loveless Church the loveless church, and we'll see that here this morning as we read Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, a description of the church of Ephesus. Are you guys ready? We're going to embark on a study of these seven churches, and this morning, chapter 2, verse 1, to the church of Ephesus, we read this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and are bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful this morning to sing the songs that we've sung, to see faces that we're familiar with. And yet this morning, God, we're riveted by the text that we're looking at this morning as the words of Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, is now discharging to the Apostle John an important message for each of the seven churches there in Asia Minor. And we're praying that as a church this morning, as we look into your word, and as we're impacted by its truth, that you would bring about great change in our hearts. That you would revive us this morning in a way that would cause us to look back at our first love, that we would be touched this morning by your presence. We're thankful for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which makes it all possible. We're grateful that you draw us back this morning into a fresh touch of our risen Savior. We pray that you would move in our midst this morning in a way that would change us forever. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. I want to ask you a question this morning, and it's simply, where were you on July the 29th, 1981? Where were you on that particular morning? You say, well, some of us weren't born yet, so we don't know where we were. Some of you who were born are like, well, I can't remember that far back to a specific date in the middle of the summer of 1981. So I want to remind you that this was a special day that marked the most televised event of world history to date. What happened? The world's most eligible bachelor 
the Duke of Windsor exchanged wedding vows with a British aristocrat, the beautiful Lady Diana Spencer. Now, do you remember where you were on that particular date? If you're older, maybe you do. Practically every eye on the planet was riveted upon this real-life Cinderella story. It was the wedding of the century with some 750 million viewers around the world watching by television. I still remember that day. I think we had to get up early in the morning to catch the wedding. I remember my mom setting the VCR, which is a video cassette recorder. And I knew it was an important day because everybody was talking about it. And there was special food and there was families getting together. This was going to be the wedding of the century. Steve Lawson, in his commentary on Revelation, tells the story beautifully. It was all something out of a fairy tale, a starry-eyed script that would have been written in Hollywood. But this one was for real. This was the epitome of love, courtship, and marriage. The scene was St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And with all of England's social elite present and Her Majesty's highest-ranking dignitaries in attendance, Prince Charles stood there at the front of the church dressed in his full military splendor waiting for his bride. And down the long center aisle proceeded Lady Diana dressed in an exquisite long flowing wedding dress. And as the wedding couple there exchanged their vows, they pledged their unconditional commitment to each other and their unwavering loyalty to each other as husband and wife. And when the high church ceremony was over, the newlyweds descended down the front steps of St. Paul's Cathedral with every church bell in London chiming. They mounted up on the horse-drawn, golden-encrusted royal coach to ride off into the sunset. And every young lady here this morning is thinking, oh, I wish that would happen to me. I want to marry Prince Charming and leave on that day like that in that beautiful setting. And then all of a sudden, as the days and the weeks and the months pass by, it suddenly happened. This fairy tale turned into a tragedy. As the clock struck midnight on this real-life Cinderella story, somewhere along the way, their lives grew apart and their love grew cold. Their pride and selfishness flourished. Their relationship became stagnant. Their interaction with one another became somewhat mechanical. The storybook relationship turned into a rumor-filled saga. There were rumors of problems in the royal, me- and in the royal marriage. Pleasantries were exchanged and public appearances were still made, but the passion seemed to be all but gone. They tried to do their duty in the relationship, but they had lost their delight. And finally, things turned from bad to worse as infidelity was confirmed on both parts. Sadly, there would be a royal separation, and separation led to divorce. The honeymoon was over. The glow was gone. This royal romance is now a thing of the past. England's most celebrated romance became a national disgrace. What a sad 
ending to that story, and yet I share that illustration with you this morning as just a reminder that far greater than the much-publicized romance between Prince Charles and Lady Di is our relationship with Jesus Christ. Ours is the greatest love story ever known. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords courted us, lowly peasants that we are, and he pursued us to become his royal bride. Ephesians 5 says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This morning, more important than any love affair that you've ever read about or dreamt about is the fact that God loves you so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the heavenly groom. And we are his earthly bride. And we've been drawn into a relationship with him that far exceeds anything imaginable. And Jesus is there for us at every moment of every day. And at first, when we came to Christ and that that marriage happened of Jesus to the church, each one of us as individuals, at first that was the epitome of love and courtship and marriage. Our hearts were so moved with passion and excitement. Bible study was so life-changing. Prayer was so heart-lifting. Worship was so emotion-filled. We longed to be in the presence of a holy God, and we longed to be in perfect fellowship with Him. Just like those newlywed couples that you see, where they're just hanging on each other's arm and they're just smiling and looking at each other. That's how we felt maybe when you first became a Christian. And then it happened to you, maybe. The business of life and the desire to get ahead and the entertainment of the world all began to pull us away from our first love. Even good things like family and church And ministry began to replace that intimate time that we spent with Jesus. And somewhere along the way, we have drifted from the Lord. Our love has grown strangely cold. Our relationship has become stagnant. Our interaction with Jesus has become mechanical. We have began to take God's love for granted. Well, how about you this morning? Is your love for the Lord still strong, or has it grown cold this morning? Is your enthusiasm still there, or has it cooled off? Has the glow faded on your once-on-fire passion for the Lord Jesus Christ? Sadly, such a separation happened to some of the believers here in the first century. The believers at Ephesus had left their first love, not all of them, but Some of them definitely had. And once on fire for Christ, their blazing passion had cooled off to a flickering flame. Once extremely passionate, they were to restore their spiritual fervor. And our Lord always takes that first step 
back. He's always calling us back into relationship with us. He's, he's not grown cold. It's us that's grown cold. He's not moved away. It's us who've stepped away from him. And he's always calling us back into a love relationship with himself. And so this morning, as we look at Christ's words to the church at Ephesus, may his words grip your heart this morning and give you hope today in restoring the love in your heart for Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to look at five headings, which really outline for us this message and the remaining six messages. And it really has to do with exactly how Jesus addressed each one of these churches. We're going to break down each one with the same five-part head uh, outline, which just talks about the setting and the speaker. That's the first part that we'll look at. And then we'll look at the strengths of the church that he's going to commend in some ways. And then we're going to look at the sin and the suffering of what the church might be dealing with in their particular context. And then we're going to see a solution that's offered for how that church can kind of get back on track or remain faithful to the Lord. And then there's a summation at the end where Jesus gives a few final parting thoughts to each church. And so that's the outline we're going to be following as we do our study here on the seven churches of Revelation. And so number one, the setting or the speaker taken from verse one. First, let's look at the setting. And your first blank, if you're taking notes this morning, just says the city. The city, we're talking about the city of Ephesus, as we read in verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. When the verse starts off saying, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, we talked last week about how an angel is also a messenger. And this is probably not an angel who's the leader of those seven churches, because no angel is really the leader of a church, but it was most likely a key messenger. The main head elder or pastor of each church is probably the one taking these writings and going and to deliver them to the church. And so the main lead pastor or elder of the church of Ephesus is who's being addressed here. And we understand that he is, again, from Ephesus, addressing this first city here, the city of Ephesus, which was by far the most prominent of all the cities of Asia Minor, which is, again, present-day Turkey. Mainly, this city was so prominent because of its location. The city was positioned on the Caister River, which was only about three miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea. And this enabled Ephesus to become a primary harbor there in Asia Minor. Those disembarking in this harbor were able to travel along a magnificent wide column line road called the Arcadian Way that led right into the center of the city. Not only this, but Ephesus also stood at the crossroads of travel by land. And there were four major highways that intersected in this metropolis, bringing businessmen and merchants from the important cities of the Roman provinces. And because of all this, the people of Ephesus were culturally advanced. They had all the amenities of a cosmopolitan city. They would have had sports and the arts and drama and pageantry. And it is estimated that its population was somewhere between a quarter of a million and a half a million people. Ephesus was also called a free city because of their booming economy. There was a certain loyalty to the Roman Empire. And so the city was allowed, more so than other cities, to be somewhat self-governing. 
There was no Roman garrison present. No oppressive Roman shadow loomed over this extravagant city. And as a result, it was a free-thinking place independent of overt Roman influence and tyranny. Ephesus was also the center of pagan worship. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was located there. I'm talking about the temple of Artemis or Diana. We say the seven wonders of the world. You might remember from history of the ancient world, those seven wonders were the great pyramid of Giza built by the Egyptians. There's the hanging gardens of Babylon, the statue of Zeus at Olympia, the mausoleum of Halicarnassus, the Colossus of Rhodes, the lighthouse of Alexandria, and then this particular structure, this temple of Artemis, which was in Ephesus. It was a beautiful temple. It was a huge temple. It was a massive structure as long as two football fields. And on the inside, pagan worship flourished with all of its temple prostitution, the grossest perversions, and drunkenness. The temple even provided a haven for criminals as they were granted amnesty while in the temple. And as businessmen flocked to participate in the lewd practices of this cesspool, it resulted in even the economy growing stronger and stronger. Well, what a great place to plant a church. And that's exactly what God did through several of his workers. He's planted a church right here in Ephesus, which would be the key church in reaching all of Asia Minor. And so let's talk about that second blank there, the church. We're talking again about the church of Ephesus. And in Acts chapter 19, verses 10 through 12, it gives us a little bit more of an understanding of what's going on here. But let me just say, perhaps no church in history had such a rich heritage as this church of Ephesus. I mean, this congregation was blessed. The gospel was introduced to that city by one of Paul's close friends and partners in the ministry. There was Priscilla and Aquila. They also soon were joined by the eloquent preacher and powerful debater named Apollos. This all laid the groundwork for Paul, who himself ministered there for about three years. And later on in his missionary journey, Paul stopped by Ephesus on his way to Jerusalem and taught the Ephesian elders the essential principles of church leadership. It was Paul's protege, young Timothy, who served as the pastor of the church of Ephesus. Onesiphorus and Tychicus, two more of Paul's fellow laborers, also ministered at some point at this church. And finally, according to the testimony of the early church, the apostle John himself spent the last decades of his life ministering at Ephesus, which is probably where he was arrested and sent to Patmos from where he penned this very letter. Dramatic and remarkable events accompanied the birth and the growth of the Ephesian church. Paul's ministry profoundly affected not only the city of Ephesus, but also the entire province of Asia. So we've said it's from this church that the other six churches were planted. Acts 19 records how because of this church, all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord. Close quote. That's Acts 19.10. And so we also understand that God performed extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so much so that even the handkerchiefs or aprons that were carried from his body to the sick were healed immediately, and the diseases left them, and evil spirits went out from them. Demetrius, a silversmith 
caused a riot there in Ephesus because Paul's preaching had such an impact on the city that the sails went down on the Diana idols. The city, in fact, they almost stoned Paul to death before one of the royal officials dismissed the crowd. So we're saying that Ephesus is a strategic city and a very dark place with a very bright light in the church of Ephesus. And I love the fact that just from the preaching of Paul and from the other faithful men and women that were there in that church, it had an impact on that entire city. Can you imagine what would happen if this church and churches like ours were to preach the word so powerfully they would actually affect the economy against nightclubs and strip clubs and evil practices in this city? That's what churches ought to be doing. Churches ought to be in attack mode. We're not rocking back on our hills trying to somehow make it through, but we're going out into the fray out into the highways, we're preaching the gospel, we're calling people to repent, we're exalting Christ, and it should have an impact on our city. In fact, let's look at the rest of verse 1 there at the very end. I want to highlight, if I can, a couple of characteristics of Christ. Your next blank, the characteristics of Christ emphasized at the end of verse 20, or excuse me, the end, uh, yeah, we're going back to the end of Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, where we read, for the mystery Uh, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so when we read here at the end of uh, chapter 2, verse 1, when it says, him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, again, that's telling us that those are the seven messengers. Those seven stars are the seven messengers, the seven pastors, the seven angels that we've been talking about. Jesus holds them in his hand. That gives us the assurance that every leader of every church is placed there providentially by the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we also read at the end of verse 1 here that Jesus is walking among the seven golden lampstands. Again, the seven lampstands equal the seven churches. So it's just a reminder that Jesus is holding the pastors in his hand. He's walking Among the seven golden lampstands, he still has a presence in what's going on. In fact, we could say that this is a reminder that the supreme and sovereign control of Christ exists over these churches. It is Jesus who is holding the seven stars in his hand, and he's walking among the seven golden lampstands, which means he's in control of every detail of his church, both universally and locally. He's in control of everything that happens in this church. Jesus is sovereign over your pastor, over our elders, over our deacons, and over our ministry leaders. He's sovereign over the budget and over the building and over our staff. And he's sovereign over our counseling ministry, over our outreach, and over our missionaries. Jesus Christ is the head of this church and every church that looks to him and has true faith in him. It's got to be encouraging to us this morning to know that Jesus Christ is in control. Let's move on to our second heading this morning. Now that we've seen the setting, particularly the city and some characteristics of Jesus, let's look now at number two, the strengths, the strengths. And before the rebuke comes the encouragement, and he's going to commend the church of Ephesus on their toil, your next blank, on their toil and perseverance. Verse 2, I know your works, 
your toil and your patient endurance. And so right there, we see that Jesus knows exactly what the church of Ephesus have been up to, and he's proud of their hard work. He's giving them some encouragement here. The toil that he's talking about, that word means to labor to the point of sweat and exhaustion. I mean, if somebody in the gym or out on the track is going to sweat, giving their all for the game that they play, how much more should the church be giving some holy sweat, some getting up early, some staying up late, some working out at church in the sense of carrying out the spiritual responsibilities that God has given to it. And that's what this church was. This was no country club church. This was no sit on the back row and just sit around and watch kind of church. There's nothing lazy about this church Holy sweat rolled down on their foreheads as this church went out with a countercultural message in the name of Jesus Christ. We also read about here how they had patient endurance, which could also be translated as perseverance. Patience and trying circumstances is what the word means. They ministered to one another under much stress and under much pressure. And when the church took on a task, they stuck with it until the job was finished. And when the going got tough, the tough got going and kept going. And despite their difficult circumstances, the Ephesian believers remained faithful to their Lord. The picture here of patient endurance is actually that of a weightlifter getting under some heavy weight and lifting it up and holding it up, and they're just kind of holding it up in the air. And the idea here is there's a great burden that this church is carrying about being salt and light in the midst of the culture, and they're just holding up Christ. They're holding up the truth, and as they're holding it up, they're still facing great difficulty, but God's encouraging them in their perseverance. We read about This concept even in Romans 5, 3, and 4, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, right? It's when you're going through a difficult time that God makes you stronger, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And we've got to be reminded this morning that nowhere did God promise that America would be easy and that religious freedoms would all come naturally. There's always a fight going on, and we're always under some kind of pressure, and God's giving us the strength to persevere and to endure. And as you're persevering and enduring through whatever trial you're facing today, God is strengthening you, and he's encouraging you, and he's giving you greater hope than you've ever had. What an incredible reminder for us this morning. That same word, perseverance, also translated as, that, as endurance, is used in 2 Thessalonians Chapter 1, verse 4, where it says, Therefore, we ourselves boast about you and the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all of your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So again, that's the normal thing for a Christian. If you're a Christian this morning, you will be facing and enduring difficulty, darkness, hardship at work, hardship at school, maybe hardship in your marriage, but God's calling you today to be enduring it, to look to Christ and to hold up in the midst of the weight that you feel like that you're under. God's going to give you the strength. Ephesus is doing it as a church, and we read next here about how they had strict and sound doctrine. 
strict and sound. That's how this church is described in that second part of verse 2 there. Not only did he commend them about their toil and patient endurance, but Jesus says, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. So here we see that they're not going to bear with the evil, meaning they're going to separate themselves from evil. They're strict in a good way and sound on doctrine. This church would not tolerate evil men. They set a high standard and chose not to tolerate sin in the camp. And with holy zeal, they purged out evil with a vengeance. I mean, morality in the Bible on many things is black and white. It was either right or wrong. And the church of Ephesus is not going to cave to the cultural popularity. And best we can tell, if one of their members slipped into sin, they would approach that person lovingly and confront them and call them to repentance. And if that person would not repent, the church would not allow a little leaven to ruin the whole lump. And we understand here that like operating on a, on a deadly cancer, they would eliminate sin wherever they found it. That's what a church ought to be doing, right? Never giving in to any doctrinal change that would affect the right interpretation of Scripture. And even four decades later, Paul had commended them not to give the devil an opportunity in Ephesians 4, 27. And they were committed to keeping the evil one out. In fact, they had been warned by Paul in Acts 20, 28 to pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God with which he obtained with his own blood. So this church has been planted. This church has been built up. This church is to be salt and light. And this church is to never cave anywhere doctrinally on the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. And so not a lick of false teaching was going to ever get into this church. They were girded up and ready to fight to the death against any false teacher who would dare try to penetrate the walls of this spiritual fortress. This church was a godly church in that way. First John reminds us of that responsibility to beware of false teachers and evil spirits. It says, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether or not they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. And so we're warned throughout Scripture, don't let the evil one creep in. Don't let those antichrist spirits creep in telling you that Jesus isn't the king, that he's not the savior, that he's not the only way to heaven, that he doesn't have authority. That's all a lie. And the church of Ephesus knew how to test the spirits. And they knew that Jesus Christ was their only hope. And they knew that Jesus was from God and that he was in the flesh and that he was incarnated and that he had died on a cross and that he had been raised from the dead and that he was coming back for his own. They knew this as a church. And so this church was a citadel of orthodoxy. It was a bastion of truth. It was an army for the cause of Christ. And verse 3 tells us that this church was also steadfast and strong. 
steadfast and strong. We know that they could not bear with those who were evil. Verse 2, they had tested those who called themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Verse 3, I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. So again, he's encouraging them, you guys are steadfast and you're strong. Despite the growing opposition to Christ, this church remained rock solid. They wouldn't waver from their mission. And while living in the hub of paganism, they held tenaciously to the truth and they would not let go. Jesus tells us that even their motive was right. He says that you endured for my name's sake. We don't do what we do based out of tradition, and we don't do what we do based out of denominationalism. We do what we do based on the Bible and on the glory of our great God. It's for his namesake that we plan to hold strong. The church of Ephesus wanted to see the banner of Christ waved over their city. They wanted Christ on the throne. They wanted his glory to be adored. It's not about a personality or a preacher or a worship team or a ministry. It's about Jesus Christ receiving all glory, all honor. It's unto him. Amen? That's what it's about. Was this admirable? Absolutely. The church that stands for nothing will fall for anything. And any ministry can only be as strong as its doctrinal purity. And like the foundation of a house, theological correctness provides stability, strength, and longevity. Jesus said in John 15, 20 through 21, he says, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. In other words, when you stay steadfast, based on the gospel, based on the Bible, people will persecute you. And we're seeing churches and denominations fall left and right. And they're caving and crashing down because they're not holding on to the rock who is Jesus Christ. And we must be ready to stand steadfast and to be strong in the midst of adversity. And to stand for Jesus requires, at times, blood, sweat, and tears. It's a fight. It's a dogfight. And you better be ready. I don't want to hear any church members come whimpering back. To me, saying somebody looked at you with a dirty look. All right? I'm trying to toughen you up a little bit this morning. Because it's going to get worse than that. And you better be ready to stand on the Bible and on the rock who is Jesus Christ. Jesus said if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. But they will do these things to you on account of my name. Because they do not know him who sent me. So we must be ready to stand steadfast and strong in the midst of adversity, even today. And it's going to be difficult at times, but we know that God will give us the strength. And so the question I have for you this morning is, Placerita Bible Church, will you stand with Christ? Will you stand with his word? Will you stand with the doctrinal statement of our church that we believe is a correct interpretation of the scriptures that we try to flesh out and and give in a way that helps make clear where it is that we stand and what it is we believe, will you stand with us? Will you hold the line? Will you submit to God and resist the devil? And he will flee from you. You've got to be ready to stand like that. And then I want to 
Skip down to verse 6 if I can. We'll come back to verse 4 and 5. But notice how verse 6 tells us, and your next blank says, discernment and deliberation. Discernment and deliberation. Verse 6, he says, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And so the Nicolaitans were followers of Nicholas, who many Bible scholars point out was a deacon of the church at Antioch, according to Acts chapter 6, verse 5, the church father Irenaeus wrote that Nicholas was also a false believer who became an apostate. But because of his credentials, he was able to lead many in the church astray. And so the Nicolaitans were involved in immorality and assaulted the church with sensual temptations. Clement of Alexander wrote, quote, they abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats, leading a life of self-indulgence, close quote. So we understand that it was said of them that their teacher, Nicholas, was perverting grace and replacing Christian liberty with a license to sin. So he was like, oh, it's okay if you live like that. I mean, you're, you're in Christ. Everything's forgiven. You can do what you want to do. You can live in this sexual way, in this deviant way. And the Nicolaitans are mentioned in more detail in verses 14 and 15 of this same chapter that we'll get to in a couple of weeks. What we're saying is the church of Ephesus recognized the error of Nicholas, a deacon in the early church, and they realized, like, that guy's not teaching the truth. We got to get rid of him and those who would follow that kind of teaching because the church of Ephesus stood strong. They had discernment. They had deliberately exposed the deeds of this apostate group. And so really, what a great compliment is being given here by our Lord Jesus Christ to the church of Ephesus. In fact, I would hope that Jesus would say these same things about our church, how privileged we would be if the Lord Jesus Christ, when asked about Placerita Bible Church, would give us the same commendation of verses 2, 3, and 6. I would hope that Christ would point out how our church has worked hard and persevered. I would hope that this church would be considered as strict on orthodoxy and sound in its teaching. I would hope that we would be considered as steadfast and strong, filled with discernment and deliberate attempt to uphold the truth. But I don't wish for Christ to address our church with what comes out of his mouth next. And your next heading there, number three, talks about the sin, the suffering of this church. Verse four, your next blank says, but I have this against you. Look there in verse four, that's exactly what Jesus says, but I have this against you. Despite all the praiseworthy elements in the Ephesian church, the laser-like eyes of Jesus has spotted a fatal flaw. And it's not about doctrine. And it's not about their Bible study. And it's not about their biblical counseling ministry. That's not what he sees that is in error. The master puts his finger on the one glaring deficiency in this church that threatened to ruin everything else. And this rebuke ought to send a bone-chilling tingle 
up and down your spine when you read it. You know, it's kind of like if somebody's talking to you and say, oh, I love the way that you do this, and I love the way that you do that, and you're so gifted in this, and you're so patient with that, and you're so loving in this, and then they look at you and say, but I have one thing against you. Then you're like, oh, man, what is it? You know, it just kind of gives you that shiver because we don't like that kind of confrontation. We love the praise. We love the accolades, and we don't want to hear the accusation. And yet, all of us, because we're far from perfect, need to be accused, not by the accuser of the brethren, who's the devil, but by Christ himself and the truth of Scripture through the Holy Spirit and our conscience and sometimes an instrument in the Redeemer's hands that will help point out a flaw in our own life. And though they had maintained their doctrinal orthodoxy and continued to serve Christ, they had lost their first love. It's as simple as that. They didn't deny the faith. They didn't welcome in heresy. They simply denied their first love. You know what sin they committed? They had become more like Martha than like Mary. They were more interested in pointing out the sin of others than savoring the glory of Jesus Christ. Duty they possessed to the max But their delight had waned, and it was all but gone. The red-hot coals of a love of flame for more of Christ had cooled to gray ash of monotony and mindless obedience. The way that Jesus felt about the church of Ephesus is similar to how God felt about Israel when they had forsaken him. Isaiah 1.4, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Isaiah 29.13, and the Lord said, because this people draw near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. God forbid that our church would fall into that same sin of holding on tenaciously to the truth, but somehow letting go of the love that Christ demands from our hearts. It is possible to be a part of a church, but to forsake the Lord. It is possible to be in a church but to still be utterly estranged from God. It is possible to praise Jesus with your lips, but to ignore him in your heart. And I'm here to tell you this morning that God wants all of you. He wants you wholly devoted in every thought, in every action, in every deed, to his glory and to his presence in a love relationship with him. And so Jesus calls out this church and he tells them in your next blank that you have left your first love. That's what he has against them, that they had left their first love. You have abandoned, he says. This gives the idea of removing themselves from the presence of Christ. Christ had not left them. They had left Christ. First love describes that fervent, passionate, I can't stop thinking about you type of newlywed 
love that a couple shares. It, it pictures that romantic love that a couple feels when they first start dating. There's a chemistry that happens. A mystical attraction occurs. Two hearts heat up. A romance in flames. Two lives fall in love and get married and become one. But sometimes something happens along the way where in that daily routine of marriage, somehow the honeymoon finally is over, right? You hear that term all the time. Well, the honeymoon's over. I guess now we're back to the grind, just trying to stay together because we don't love each other anymore. Children come, and we love our children. But sometimes they begin to pull away maybe at that romance of the marriage. The career takes off. The business expands. The activities increase. You become the ultra Santa Clarita Valley soccer mom. Well, too bad you can't go to soccer right now. You know, but just saying, that's what happens, right? We get distracted with all this going on in life. And suddenly, two people wake up as complete strangers. And this is a scathing rebuke against the Ephesians who were not keeping the greatest commandment. Did you get that? We're like, oh, they know the gospel. They know the truth. They recognize false teachers. But what is the greatest commandment? Jesus said it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And Ephesus wasn't keeping commandment number one. They had dropped it and forgot about it and got focused on everything else. God forbid that this would happen to you this morning or it would happen to me this morning, that we would somehow just be about all the accessories and all the externals. Jonathan Edwards was one of the best theologians to challenge the tendency for Christians to evaluate and elevate their duty as somehow being more important than their delight. And he writes this, quote, He that has doctrinal knowledge and speculation only without affection never is engaged in the business of religion. Close quote. You know what he's saying? For the person who's all about the doctrine and all about the knowledge but has no affection, you don't even know what the Christian religion's about. Because it's always about both. It's about spirit and truth. It's about the truth and your heart being affectionate with those religious affections for God. In other words, you're not glorifying God if you're not affectionate about Him. You want to obey Him because you love Him. I mean, He's not honored by some type of grim duty without the glee of delight. He's honored when we want to be in His presence and we want to be near Him because we love Him. And we want to be right where he is. This is what God has called us to. Ladies, can you imagine if your husband were to come home to you at night and say, I don't love you anymore, but I'm still going to go to work, and I'm still going to get paid, and I'm still going to fulfill your honey-do list, and I'm still going to do all the things that is required of me as a husband, but I don't love you. Would that be good enough for you ladies? Would you be like, oh, perfect, finally. Can you do this? Can you do this? Can you do this? 
You better not fall into that, right? But you would say, hey, that ain't going to work. I need your love. God's called us to love one another. It's not just about fulfilling our duties. It's about having that love. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 is all about, that without love, you are only a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the faith to move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and deliver my body up to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Our hearts should pulsate with the blazing, passionate, vibrant love for Christ or we have failed in our Christian walk. So what's the solution, you say? Well, let's look at number four, the solution in verse five that Jesus gives to us when he says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And so here... Encouragingly, we read about the great physician who has a foolproof prescription for getting back to the way things ought to be. And if you'll take his medicine today, I guarantee you that it will cure you of your spiritual apathy. And that's actually reassuring because a lot of times when you go to take medication from the doctor, you're not sure if it's going to work or not. When you take those supplements or those vitamins, you're not 100% sure if they're going to work or not. You hope they are, and hopefully they do, but you understand what I'm saying. This is a foolproof prescription. If you're here and say, hey, Adam, I'm being convicted right now. I know what it's like to lose my love right now, and I'm telling you that Christ's prescription is a cure for spiritual apathy, and he gives it to us in three simple doses. You ready? Your next blank simply says, remember from where you have fallen. In other words, remember when you first came into faith in a relationship with Christ. He tells us to remember your testimony. Replay those initial days in your mind when you had an incredible excitement about being a newborn babe in Christ. And we're to refocus on those times when we loved Jesus so much that our hearts were bursting forth with adoration. And you say, yeah, I know, I know, I know. I said, no, no, spend some time thinking about the fact that you were lost, but now you've been found. That you were on your way to hell, and now you're on the way to heaven. That you were in complete bondage to your sin, and now you've been made free in Christ. Can you remember when you first fell in love with Jesus? Maybe you were saved at an early age, but surely your mind goes back to some point in time when those truths became so real to you that you were on fire. You were so excited and so full of passion that every single time that you opened up the Word of God, it was God speaking to you. And every single time that you were praying on your knees, you didn't want to stop. And as you began to memorize verse after verse and chapter after chapter, it resonated with your heart. You longed to be at church, and you would get there early, and you would stay late, and you couldn't wait for small group. 
You are hungry to spend time with Christ and to tell others about what Christ was doing in your life. Can you remember a time like that? I can. I remember that God saved me at an early age, about eight years old. There was a love in my heart for him, even as a young child. Struggled a little bit through high school in that first year of college, like many of us do. And then all of a sudden, there was a rekindling. There was a reminder that I had to make a choice to either go with Christ or go with the world. And it was in front of my face, what are you going to do? And it was a reminder of like, I'm so thankful God saved me. And I'm so ashamed of my sin. And I want to run back into his arms. And in my second year of college, it was like God just grabbed my heart, pulled it back into his presence in a way that refreshed my soul. And it was a beautiful time of growth. And yet, you know what it's like even throughout your adult life. I can't coast on what God did in my heart in my second year of college. My goodness, that was like 10 years ago. A little bit further. (laughs) But we don't, like, we look back to those times so that we're just reminded of, like, God, I want that. I don't want that. I want more than that. I want today at age 40-something, to be in God's presence like never before. I don't want to go back to what God did in my heart in college. I want to go forward beyond the boundaries of where I've ever been by being in his presence with such a love and a passion for him. And he's telling us, remember, remember what God did. That's part of the medicine that we're to be taking. It's kind of like remembering when you first fell in love with your spouse. That's what we do sometimes in biblical counseling. Husband and wife come in, they're having a little trouble, we listen to what's going on, hear their testimony, and then uh, somewhere in the counseling, usually early on, to be like, hey, just tell me how you guys met. How did you guys meet, and how did you guys fall in love? They start kind of telling the story, and you kind of see a little smile here, and a little excitement there. Oh, it was this, and it was that. I thought she was so cute, and he was so handsome. And before you know it, you're like, you guys still need counseling, or we're in a good spot here. You guys ready to go? You know, it's like just remembering that can be such a beautiful thing. Do you remember if you're married today? Can you remember when you fell in love? I do. I remember when I fell in love with this young lady right here. Whoa, that was a day. That was a week. There, there were days I couldn't eat. I was like, why eat a sandwich when I could spend time thinking about Lisa? See Houston, soon to be Tyson. God, speak to her heart. Let her know, I'm your man, God. I was so impacted that I just couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. I had to be with her. I wanted to be on the phone or texting or pretending like we were studying together at Starbucks. <laughs> those are beautiful days. And I want them back, babe. Let's get back to those days, right? It's, it's not her, it's me. I've left. I'm coming back, babe. I'm coming back. But it's, a, it's just that reminder of when you think about those days, it's just a beautiful shot in the arm of like, you know what? Praise God for that. And I know love 
grows and it matures and we love each other in different ways, but there's something about having that affection, that white, hot, I gotta be with you kind of love, kind of like this engaged couple right here. We have a couple that was engaged last week. I came in last week and they were like glowing. They were just like faces lit up. I mean, they were just like, they're still glowing. They're still arm in arm this morning. I had to pull them apart. Now you guys can sit close. It's all right. So do you remember when you fell in love with Christ like that We need to remember that. The Bible tells us that even in the remembering of the Lord's table, right? We're told in 1 Corinthians, when you've given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is the cup, the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Christ wants us to remember. So that's the first step. Remember what you deserve, hell. Remember what it was like to be without Christ, horrible, and in bondage to your sin. You should never be looking back on those days or like, well, those were the days before I had to get right with God. I could just sow my wild oats and do whatever I wanted. That's pitiful. And it was horrendous. And you were on a path to hell. But now that God saved you, you are remembering where he's brought you out of. And the second dose of medicine, if you will, Jesus says to remember, then he says to repent, to repent of your lovelessness right there in the middle of verse five. You got to remember from what you've fallen, from where you've fallen, and then you repent the lovelessness of the Ephesian church. And even in our hearts today is nothing short of sin. The loveless church is a sinful church. The loveless heart is a sinful heart. There is nothing short of just being sinful. It's a commandment, right? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is, this is not just an emotion that comes and goes. It's both a commitment and an emotion. It's both. You know, in the church, everybody's so much about duty, duty. You just got to do it no matter what. And then you have other people who are like, well, don't do it unless you feel like it. And I'm like, well, then you're not going to do it half the time because you're not going to feel like it. It's just always both. You do what God's called you to do, and you pray that God would give you that love for him in the way that he commands you to have, and you ask for it every day. And then you just keep repenting of your lovelessness. God, the apathy, that's my fault. That's my problem. I've been too distracted with the things of the world. I want to repent. I want a change of direction in my life and a change of heart and a change of mind and a change of attitude and a change of will. And it means that I want to, I want to, I want to change to be conformed more and more into the image of Christ every single day from one degree of glory to another, beholding the Lamb of God. And the fact is that if you're not feeling that, it's about fact and feeling, faith and feeling. They go together. But if you're not feeling that, then something or someone else has replaced your first love. Anything or anyone that you love more than Christ on this moment, on this day, has somehow become your new first love. It could be your job. It could be your house. It could be your car. It could be your relationship. It could be your education. It could be your hobby. It could be yourself. If anything or anyone is more exciting to you 
than the Lord Jesus Christ, then it could be that you're in danger of having lost your first love. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to repent today. Right here, right now in this service, maybe you need to pray something like, Lord, take me back. Take me back to remember what you've done for me. I repent of all of my spiritual apathy and my lovelessness. Bring me back. Draw me close to you like the apostle James said in James 4, 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. That's what we need to be doing. God, draw me back. I'm going to draw near to you, God. I know that you're going to draw near to me. I remember what you saved me from. I repent of my apathy. And then last, our third little dose of medicine would be redo the things that you did at first. He tells us there, do the works that you did at first. Do those same deeds. Get busy doing what God has called you to do, but do it in his strength for his glory, but you can't just simply wait till you feel like it. We're commanded to do what God's called us to do. Simply put, get back to the basics. What were some of those first deeds? Jesus doesn't specifically tell us here, but you can pretty much guess that it would have been something similar to what we saw even in the book of Acts, in Acts uh, chapter 2, where we read about Pentecost, where there were 3,000 souls converted, baptized, added to the church. Immediately, there were new believers who were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And so we got to get back to doing those basics, man. We need to be together, reading God's word meditating on scripture, spending time in prayer, serving one another. You know, I've had the privilege of leading a lot of mission trips in my day as a, as a, as a, a seminary student, a youth pastor, as a pastor. We take folks overseas, and we see an incredible transformation many times in the hearts of the team members. And sometimes they ask, man, why has this been so awesome? And, and oftentimes I'll say, hey, look, in some ways this is a mountaintop experience, but in some ways just think about what we're doing right now. We're limiting our distractions. We're not spending time just watching TV all the time or texting all the time because some of the countries you go to, you don't have Wi-Fi. Praise God. You know, and it's like we're, we're spending time in prayer, extra time in worship, fellowship. We're serving others. No wonder we're on fire. How about when you get back home, considering how you can make some changes in your schedule to maintain many of those same spiritual disciplines because I don't know about you, I don't like coming back down into the valley. Now, I get it. Life is filled with peaks and valleys, but I'm always wanting to climb back up. And the way that we climb back up to be where he is is maybe to consider making some changes of doing what it is that God's called us to do in loving God and in loving others. So many things that we could be doing, but we need to remember that God has forgiven us this morning, and we need to remember that he's called us to repent this morning, and he's telling us to redo the things that we did at first, and we would do those unto his glory, in his power, for his glory. And so our final heading this morning is the summation as he kind of wraps up his thoughts. Remember, we already covered verse 6, where he does give a little more commendation about how they had discernment, but then moving down to verse 7, 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so Jesus is saying here, this exhortation is something similar that he says in each one of the summations to each one of the seven churches. And he's saying, listen, if you have a spiritual ear to hear what I'm saying, I'm expecting you to put it into practice. He's saying, in essence, be doers of the word and not hearers only. So if you hear what I'm saying, I'm expecting you to keep this and to have this truth change you, and therefore for you to live differently in light of what you've heard. And so he's telling them, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Next, another description here is that of a faithful overcomer. Your next blank, a faithful overcomer. He says, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. And he's just reminding the believers in Ephesus, as I would remind you today, that if you are in Christ this morning, you are an overcomer. And he's talking to you. You're not some lame duck. You're an overcomer in Christ. To him who heeds Christ's words and depends on Christ and loves Christ is by his very nature an overcomer. In fact, John does not use this term to describe a super-Christian that only some Christians attain to. This is for all Christians, that every genuine believer would think of themselves as an overcomer. This is how John addresses believers in 1 John 5, 4 and 5, for everyone who has been born of God and overcomes the world. And this is the victory that he has overcome the world, who, he that overcomes the world except the one who believes in the Son who is Jesus Christ. In other words, he uses the word overcomer many times in 1 John to say, that's you. If you're feeling this morning like I can't attain to this high calling, just reminder, just be reminded this morning, you are an overcomer. If you're in Christ, you can overcome your sin and your apathy by walking and embracing who God's called you to be. That's your identity as an overcomer. And the final blessing here, C, in your outline is the forever promise He promises that you will be able to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is an obvious reference to eternal life, the fact that Christians will dwell in heaven with God forever and ever. And there are further references to this in Revelation 22 about the tree of life, referring to that eternal state. Thus, all believers share in Christ's victory over sin and over Satan and over death, and all true believers will overcome because of the persevering ministry of the Holy Spirit. It is still true that he who began a good work in you will carry it out into completion at that day of Christ Jesus. And so I'm here this morning calling you back. This morning, I'm calling you back to Christ. This morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ and you've never repented of your sins and you're living in the mud and in the mire of this world, I'm calling you out of darkness into light. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never repented. You've never trusted Christ. You've been playing a game all along. You attend the Master's University or our church or you're even raised in a Christian family. But somehow, while you could check all the boxes of what the gospel is intellectually, it's never taken root in your heart. That's you this morning. I'm calling you to repent and to put your faith in Christ, to be born again this very day. Talk to your mom. 
Talk to your dad. Talk to a friend. We'll have some leaders up here after this last song. We're inviting you to come up and to give your heart to Christ this very morning that you wouldn't leave this tent after hearing a message like this and somehow walk away from God. We're calling you to salvation today. If you're here this morning and you are a believer and God nailed you between the eyes this morning, not by what I've said, but by what Jesus Christ says to his church of Ephesus. And if you're like, that's me. I've lost my first love. I don't know what to do. We're encouraging you to come up front this morning after this last song. We'll have people here to pray with you, to counsel you, to remind you of the goodness and the greatness of God. God forbid that we would hear a message like this and somehow only leave filled with duty and not having the delight that God calls us to. And so in the take-home messages here, we see these questions. Have you left your first love? Are you ready to hear Christ's rebuke? Are you eager to remember and to return to your first love? May you remember your first love and repent of your sin, and may you be drawn to Christ and all of his beauty and all of his glory this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity just to be reminded of these truths. I know for many of us, we've heard this message preached many times about the church of Ephesus, the loveless church, and it would be easy for us to be like, well, I've heard that message before, and I've, and I've, you know, I've, I've, I've looked and thought about those things, but this morning, I pray that fresh and anew as if we had never seen or heard it before, that your Holy Spirit would touch and point in our hearts at places where we've grown cold, where we've grown apathetic, where we've been lazy. I'm praying, God, that you would do revival in our church, that you would wake us up, Lord, not just to the importance of voting and of fighting for our privileges as citizens of this great nation, But I'm praying, God, that as citizens of the church, as those who belong to Christ, that we would be more excited about you, not because somehow we're trying to just fake it or just work ourselves up in external emotionalism. God, we want to burn in our hearts for you. And I'm praying, God, that you would do a special work in every husband, every wife, every young adult, every teenager, every boy, every girl this morning, that you would not let us leave this place, that you would help us to have those conversations over lunch and in small group in such a way that would just challenge us and encourage us and remind us of your incredible love for us, that while we were yet sinners, that Christ died for us. Lord, we confess that we are easily swayed, that there are idols all the time in our hearts, Help us to put those things to death. Help us today on this morning to love you with every single piece of our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.